Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Mark Johnston, CEO of VetStream Limited, a leading provider of peer-reviewed online clinical information for veterinarians. With a PhD in veterinary medicine from the University of Cambridge, he has also spearheaded significant epidemiological research projects on equine fatalities. With a special focus on the U.S. market, Mark has vast experience in sales and marketing in the veterinary market. I've asked Mark, who is also a beekeeper in his spare time, to join us here today, talk about his journey in marketing, sales, and managing an editorial team to produce compelling content people will pay for. So Mark, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? It's a pleasure. Thank you. And it's nice to be here. Yeah, it is nice to have you here. We had some good pre-record chit-chat on a couple of calls. And before we get into where you're doing what you're doing now, how did you even get into running companies and marketing and sales? Did your parents have businesses? Do you come from a family business? Is this nope. a family trade? Nope. No, absolutely not. Slight shock alert. My father tried to be a farmer when I was younger and then took his life when I was 10. My mother remarried a solicitor, a lawyer in a local town in Gloucester. And so I've got no entrepreneurial interests in my family history. In fact, I was really focused on being a veterinarian when I went through my schooling, although I was, supposed, I was told by the careers advisor that I should be a planner because I, I was interested in geography, history and English. N no, I wasn't. I was interested in science and biology anyway. So I ended up <laughs> applying for veterinary medicine, got turned down by all the human medicine medical schools, which was my plan B. So I do remember getting turned down by Southampton Medical School on the day I got accepted by Cambridge. So that was really nice. And actually, I managed to, and, and this, I guess, is a really important lesson, never take no as an answer. Mm. I didn't do very well in my what we call A-levels, and those exam results have just come out this week in the UK. And I realized that I scored less than a monkey would randomly with multiple choice questions in physics. <laughs> I messed up my A-levels first time round and then went round again <laughs> another year. And, and then with Cambridge, I thought, uh-oh, I'm going to have to offer physics as a, an entrance exam because they required three sciences for veterinary medicine. And I thought, I can do chemistry, I can do zoology. So that seems relevant if you're going to be a veterinarian. And then I thought, what other science am I going to do? And actually, I said to them, how about botany and and Cambridge being Cambridge said if you could teach yourself botany in four or five months to the standard that we're going to expect we'll take you seriously so that's how I ended up being in, in Cambridge they were entertained by my approach and I basically went through Cambridge just wanting to be an equine vet I ended up in equine practice in Newmarket operate as the anaesthetist and critical care guy for a referral centre in Newmarket, in, which did a lot of racehorse work and others. But essentially, the short, long story short was that was fine. It was quite terrifying. Doing anaesthesia and critical care was not the most popular subject at veterinary school. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I ended up there because I wanted to work in the centre of the equine uh, world. I did it and worked with a wonderful surgeon who I was his sidekick for, if you like. But I burnt out, effectively. I was doing ridiculous hours and... It didn't really, I couldn't see myself, the more expert I became, I couldn't see myself being able to extricate myself from doing more and more of this stuff. And mm. back in the days before we knew what wokeism was or snowflakes or anything like that, I think many of my colleagues just got on with it, stiff upper lip, British approach to life. 
But I think I probably had a deeper vulnerability, probably going back to when I lost my father, what the psychologists now call an adverse childhood event. And maybe I just wasn't cut out for doing the clinical Mm. side of things. Mm. And I guess I'm also, I realized only about five, maybe a bit longer, six, seven years ago, that actually my personality type is a creator. Whereas a lot of veterinarians are very happy doing repeated appointments and operations and consultations and things. I was bored senseless by doing repeated lameness examinations and things. Mm. I got much more buzz out of meeting people like you and others and going into a room where I don't know a soul and coming up with business opportunities that Mm. I could then um, turn from being competitors into being collaborators. Mm. And so I Mm. did a research project to get out of clinical practice the confidential inquiry into perioperative equine fatalities and that was all about epidemiology another scary subject that we thanks to covid know a little bit more about now Mm. i realized that's a rabbit hole that i would not live in either and at the same time i saw the vet stream concept an amazingly far-sighted man john greve who was based in Cambridge and he had a crazy idea back in 1995 where you'd be able to have um, a handheld device with information beamed down by satellite and that information had to be comprehensive up to date cross-linked all that stuff and now of course we have these funny things called smartphones and he doesn't seem crazy at all but this was 1995 before the internet had been thought of we lugged around a computer to go and see various funders And I became interested in how to help the veterinary profession using my approach to collecting data in my PhD and turning it into information of 147 clinics, equine clinics around the world, and helping them improve their practice. And Mm. thought that the vet stream concept was going to be something that could be helpful because books are written three or four years before they're printed. Inevitably, they're therefore out of date. Yeah, someone's stolen them from the library. They're covered in blood. The page is ripped out. Whatever, whatever. Mm. They're not the ideal way of keeping up to date. And then John's concept was something that really appealed to me emotionally and intellectually. So I went into understanding how to support the veterinary profession, and that's how I got involved in VetStream. Really, I love that. I love that. So already, it just the story talks about finding a really tight niche with a compelling emotional need, because when somebody loses an animal, there's, there's repercussions to that. I, th- I used to want to be a social worker. And then I did this program called Katimovic, where I got to travel and work around Canada for nine months. When I was 17, it was a house full of 10 kids, 17 to 21. And we did all sorts of like full-time volunteer jobs everywhere. But every evening and weekend, basically, if there was anything, any community events going on, we would just show up and be 10 instant volunteers for nine yeah. nine months. And one of the full-time volunteer jobs I had was at a middle school. And I worked with the social worker. I worked with the seventh grade teacher and I worked with the librarian and the social worker. I found I was I like I carried things home with me. Yeah. I think exactly what I'm talking about. Like when you leave yeah, the yeah. office. The issue doesn't stay there. When you clock out, you're off of the clock, but you, and I decided that I couldn't, I didn't, wasn't emotionally resilient enough for that job. And so it sounds like you found like a tight niche with a very compelling emotional need. And then 
created a certain, a highly scalable service for it. It sounds, it sounds fantastic in terms of listening to the story that way. Yeah, it, I think that's what we uh, realized we needed. And I go back to John Greve. He was the guy and yep. I came on, I helped with the fundraising. I, I've been involved with it for far too many years, probably. But uh, I also realized going through that, that actually the mental, my mental health experience of burnout needed to be addressed as well. So I, I did get some good professional help eventually, thanks to my wife steering me in the right direction before I hit the brick wall. And actually, it's worth just saying, again, for other entrepreneurs, if you're in the wrong place, don't be afraid of changing direction. And I do remember my mother coming up to what we call see practice with me. She basically came around and saw me in racing yards and watched me in eastizing horses and things. And she was absolutely bursting with pride. And this was the pinnacle of equine practice and uh, a very small area of veterinary practice, but really top area. And she was able to talk about it in the social circuit in Gloucestershire. And and I disclosed to her and said, Mum, I'm hating this. And she said, what do you mean you're hating it? You're nearly a partner in this firm. It's going to be the answer to all your prayers and everything else. And I said, yeah, it might be, Mum, but it's just not me. And I'm going to get out. Mm. And I remember her saying to me, but darling, what am I going to say on the social circuit in the, the cocktail party <laughs> and lunch a, things? And I said, I really don't give a damn what you say in the, in the social circuit. I need to get out. Otherwise, I'm not going to be here. And by yeah. that, I meant I'm going to follow the same routes my dad did. Right. So that was a bit shocking for her and woke her up a bit. Um, but the whole mental health thing is critical to um, many people in clinical care settings because we do bear the brunt. To your exact point, Daryl, we are, are exposed to vicarious trauma, by which I mean the trauma of the people you're looking after or the animals you're looking after. And that has an impact on us. And it's a really important thing for us to be able to, in the caring professions, human and veterinary and other social care settings, we've got to find outlets um, yes. to that emotional stuff. We've got to find our boundaries. We've got to have releases. And actually, it's why I also set up separately a um I'm a bit of a content squirrel and I guess I realized that after a while not just being a creator but a content squirrel and I kept on during COVID looking for content on mental health in the caring professions and set up what you can see the logo um in the bottom uh, part mm -hmm. of my my background the vets in mind um down below the the, the head with the footprints this is a mental health support um, application. It's an app on Apple and uh, Google Play stores. And we also have triage tools to help um, people in the veterinary community and their friends and contacts yep. anonymously, really important, to find out where they are on anxiety, PTSD, low mood, suicidal thoughts. So that not-for-profit is completely separate to that stream itself. And I guess I, uh, I'm interested in creating organizations projects to address needs and the need that I looked for in the mental health thing was pretty obvious because I had a pretty direct experience and lost too many friends within the profession through either the mortality of suicide or the morbidity of just being just their mental health being very poor but the the need within Betstream was the it was driven by the actual market the demand by vets for more information because you can't keep up with all that's out there or you couldn't mm. do before Google arrived. 
And even with Google, you're then looking at uncertainty. You got to read a whole study. You have to look yeah. at if the study was done well. You have to yeah. check the math on their statistical analysis. The methodology yeah. was the methodology flawed. There's so yeah. people don't understand. I'm listen, I'm just a monkey with a smartphone, but people don't understand and respect like how just because it's a published study, even if it's a peer reviewed study, how little nuances can slip through the cracks and you've got bad data. And if you have bad data, then everything else on top of it. So I just want to repeat one more thing before we carry on. That's Vets in Mind is the app for mental health. Yeah. I think it might be applicable to people who are non-vets. It's yes, nonprofit. It yeah. So yeah. go check that out. Yeah. If you're, yeah. If you're, it's very open um, to, for people to use. I don't, it, we don't collect any uh, personal yeah. data. It, it's yeah. really important that people, vets are very pra clin clinical people, carers uh, are very um, capable people. And we have this concept of the hero complex where because we're capable and making important decisions, it's we can be seen as and build ourselves up into this sort of hero mentality. So when we start not coping, we tumble quite quickly into un an unpleasant place. Yeah. So the hero complex enables us to stay at that place. All is fine. My wife has a phrase of explaining fine and the F I won't use, but you can yeah. guess in a second. Yeah. The I stands for insecure, the N for neurotic and the E for, yeah. so good i can't even remember what it was insecure okay. oh emotional and the f is an expletive which you can probably yeah. imagine beginning uh, with f and ending yeah. off we are not fine a lot of the time and we need to be able to recognize that talk about it i think we're getting better at it but those so that mental health support need was vets in mind and it's open to anyone the vet stream business the vet lexicon services all about looking after and providing what vets need right at the sharp end, veterinarians, I should say, sorry, at the sharp end of clinical practice in both companion animal practice, in equine practice like I was, and livestock practice. We try and provide that. And it's been it's been a bumpy journey. No one told us um, how to, to do what we were doing. Paper publishers saw us as massive competitors, so they weren't very friendly towards us for understandable reasons. So we had to reinvent the wheel. Um, and so we started with clean sheet of paper, and we came up with um, putting into practice what John Grieve had as a concept. And it, it really was revolutionary. And pioneers get the arrows, settlers get the land. And we were pretty determined not to be just pioneers. So we had to really reinvent and make sure that we were settlers too. And that was a learning process. So the journey of providing information and in the right format as I say, internet, we started off with CD-ROM. That was all you could use, which we sent out every three months. And then luckily the internet came along, but as slow as a slow thing. And then it's now become a lot quicker. And we've now got 5G and we'll probably have something even faster sooner. It's The technology is has been helpful, but also hindered our progress. Mm. But we've, we've built up 1,200 contributors, leading clinical people writing the content, oh. We got 18, 20, 28,000 bits of content and we keep it up to date and we got subscribers all over the world. That sounds really positive, doesn't it? But the journey on the way has been fun. Yeah, and, and, I was going to say. Uh, bumpy and turbulent. What were some of the biggest challenges? <laughs> 2008, when the world collapsed financially, I was uh, told by everyone prior to that, Oh man, this is we should everything should be free and it should all be paid for by advertisers. 
and yeah. you shouldn't charge for the content. And I said, no, I'm not thinking that's a good idea. We'll stay with charging subscriptions. Thank you. Thank goodness we did. Because all of the revenue from all of the pharmaceutical and pet food companies and others disappeared instantly. Mm. And I was in a group that had paper publishing, which was funded by advertising. So that required us to restructure the business completely, to shed that paper publishing side of things and stick to our knitting, which was digital publishing, thinking that was the way forward, paid for by people on subscriptions. And that's what enabled us to drive through that restructuring. And that was painful. And I had many conversations, difficult conversations with HMRC, our tax authorities, because we got ourselves a little bit behind in various payments to them. That's mm -hmm. entertaining. They're doing their day job, but it's it's pretty brutal when you're trying to help a business survive and thrive. Yeah, we've had some we've had some fun times that have really tested us, challenged us. And we constantly try and innovate and keep looking out laterally, looking for those black swans that may appear, like our dear friend artificial intelligence which I am not sure yet whether it is a friend or a foe. I'm pretty certain it's potentially a big foe. And so we're doing all we can to make our content not just an encyclopedic source, but actually that people can interact with it to help them with their continuing professional development. And they can use it in ways that a machine can't. Because mm -hmm. I think vets, veterinarians want content produced by human beings who are experts, not machines. But this is as bad as AI is ever going to be with chat GPT. It's only going to get more and more capable. Mm. So we've got to stay ahead somehow of an exponential rising capability of the technology. And mm. so that's another little business challenge, which is keeps us fresh, keeps us on yeah. our toes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know the future. I can't guarantee to, but I've had a lot of talks with a lot of different experts on this and I the market is unknown and unknowable and the future is unknowable as well. So the best you can do is try to get more and more clear what the problem is that you are solving yeah. for your buyers and just focus on excellence. And if that means adopting a new technology, if that means, like you said, constantly innovating, reinventing yourself, the key focus has to be on excellence of outcome, whatever that outcome may be in some way, shape or form. And I think that for what you guys have done, you've done so much so well. And because you guys have been like revolutionary from the beginning, I just think it's, tell me if I'm wrong, but it might just be same song, different day to a certain extent, right? Because this is before it was CDs, then it was internet and all the content should be, it's just yeah. same song, different day. But I think if you just focus on excellence and what the specific problems are, I think that will see people through whatever they're doing. The problem is when people are copycats and me too, because there's no innovation. Right. And then there's no, yeah. And when they're a copycat, now you have no unique value because with code and media, I can reach anybody that wants to listen to this interview can listen to this interview. I don't need someone to be a redistributor of it. I might need channels to help access and distribution, but I think, you know, it's really, it's not a, it's not a restaurant. I don't need local based satellite offices. I can do this from my main office here and anybody in the world can see it. So it's really a competition of excellence. And if people aren't trying to be excellent at what they're doing, I think they need to find something else to do. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, it's very, it's, it is very tempting for people to say, oh, let's just do what they've done. And that's fine. I get that people want to make a living and that may be something that appeals to them, but it will not 
thrive. It will not survive. Copycat businesses, in my experience, don't do so well mm-hmm. because they're not, they haven't got the why. And we go back to the importance of why you're in the business and mm. why you're providing what you do. And that that simple message is really, for us, incredibly easy to answer. The why is the human-animal bond of being a vet, right? Mm, it's mm. not the love of animals. It, it's the value of animals to us as human beings. The relationship we have with animals mm. is what we as veterinarians are supporting. And we at VetStream are providing what we call TLC for veterinary practices. Mm. And instead of the usual TLC, tender love and care, which is the obvious joke in the tagline, we're providing treat, learn and communicate. Mm. But the joke still applies. We do provide TLC because it's supporting those veterinarians to deliver care for the animals in their care and why those animals in their care? Because they matter to people either for emotional reasons in companion animals or for farming and um, food um, reasons. And we are there to support those veterinarians. Um, and mm. that human animal bond is the why behind what VetStream does. And the TLC bit extends through across into the Vets in Mind project as well where we're supporting the Mm -hmm. mental health and welfare of the people within the veterinary sector and anyone else who wants to experience and use the tools as well so I completely agree you've got to recognize what you're good at stay really close to your customers and consumers your market don't be product driven if you're product driven you're toast because you'll mm. just come up with another spade or a shovel. Whereas if you're market driven and you, you listen to what the guys will tell you, and if you ask people, they'll tell you what they want. I had a bit of feedback last night from a colleague we're just about to form a partnership with in the States, and he's come up with eight different points. He hasn't understood that we've got answers to all of those yet because he's not looked at it in as much detail. Mm. I take all of that feedback completely on the chin, and I'm going to go back to him in a measured way today and say, if you'd like to look here, you'll see that we have that. If you go here, blah, 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 all of that. But I am I welcome any feedback. I mm-hmm. want him to polish what we've got and stay polished. Like the top of my head, which I think is quite shiny today. We stay focused on the market and really listen to what people are wanting. And then you've got a business that's got that's going to be sustainable. It's going to thrive. Be a me too, and you'll always be behind the pace. Mm-hmm. You haven't got mm-hmm. the, the emotional drive to to really innovate. Uh, you're just going to go, oh, they've done that. Let's do that. Guess what? We're going to be five steps ahead again. Mm-hmm. So it's you've got to keep out your competitors. You've got to work out strategic partnerships. But mm. really powerfully, I think the why you are in business doing what you're doing, whether it's cutting hair, whether it's, as you say, being a restaurateur, um, whatever it happens to be, yeah, that is the passion. And you, you need to find that passion um, mm-hmm. in the business that and, and the profession or the, the life that you're living commercially, as well as, and I really believe this now, because one of the reasons I burnt out, I think it's pretty clear now, was that I had no other outside interests. For a start, mm-hmm. I, 24-7 in the, right. in the hospital, I right. didn't have any time for anything. And wasn't even allowed to leave Newmarket to go to a wedding or to anything for between 15th of February, my birthday, through to the 1st of July. It's what they call the stud season. And that's when a lot of foals are born and when a lot of the horses, the racing racehorses are being trained extensively on the flat. 
uh, not over the jumps, but on the flat. So I wasn't able to leave during that time. So I just worked and we had two young children at the time. Now I'm very happy to, as I love trout fishing and the time I spend on the river, maybe sometimes on my own, sometimes with friends. Photography is something, wildlife photography is something that I really love. That lets out my creativeness again. And beekeeping, learning about those creatures live in a hive, 30,000 of them without killing each other and thriving (laughs) and everything else. And also, I'm afraid what we are doing as veterinarians to the world of insects with our insecticides that we put on our dogs thinking it's a good thing with flea and ticks or that then leak into the rivers and uh, kill out the insects that larvae that are there, all of that stuff. So you, you mean like for livestock, flea and tick stuff too? I never considered that because at first I thought you were thinking about house pets, like putting no. flea and tick stuff on my dog. But I realized, no, you're talking about livestock, like having this. Well, like live, livestock, they've been a lot more controlled, controlling and what products are allowed to be on those animals. They're already pollutants to the environment in some respects because they produce a lot of poo. And yeah. poo goes is not handled sometimes very well in the farming world. So that can leak into the water tables and rivers and cause problems. But the pharmaceutical uh, control of what was being used on those animals for um, ticks and uh, other parasites has now been a lot more controlled. But in small animals, um, people have just not really understood the impact that those active ingredients, those chemicals can have and how long lasting they are in the environment. And there's a very interesting guy called Leon Barron in Imperial College in London, who did, he's a fascinating guy. He's done a life scientific broadcast on BBC. Go listen to it. He's Mr. Sewage. He's fascinating. He's a forensic scientist. And he and I, for some reason, got talking a couple of years ago. And he was saying, what is it about and cocaine and ketamine? going up in London in the waterways in parallel during COVID. And it turns out that a lot of the younger generation are combining those two recreational pharmaceuticals. Good luck to them. Uh, Please don't play with ketamine. I've used it all my life clinically. It's not stuff to be played with. That's that's my one of my strong take home messages. Ketamine is really not funny to, to play with. It may give you a nice buzz at the time. But it will, for instance, trash your bladder and your urinary system, which you probably will need later in life. Spoiler alert. And also he looked and saw large amounts of imidcloprid and fipronil in waterways rising as well in certain times. He said, what's all this about? What were those chemicals? You say those chemicals? Imidcloprid and fipronil. Those are the active ingredients that are found in increasing amounts in uh, water um, rivers. And um, there's a lot of research now being done. Um, and it's probably because it's um, people are um, uh, it's being put onto their dogs. Um, it washes off, goes into the mm. and into the rivers and is not helping the insect life. And why is that important? Fish eat insects. And guess right. what? So do songbirds. If we don't provide the insects for songbirds, then The Silent Spring, those of you who are familiar with that book, if you're not, it's an absolutely must read. This That that book described the impact that we were having on the environment way back in the 60s. The Silent Spring, absolutely instrumental. And the banner has been taken up by very important biological people like David Attenborough, or Sir David Attenborough, I should say, 
Duke of Edinburgh in, the, in England, King Charles, all of these guys were seen as wacko and tree huggers. And all of a sudden now everyone's going, oh, oops, have we, we've not just got environmental catastrophes happening in wildfire, wildfires, but we're also pouring plastic into oceans. We're um, killing off all of the biodiversity that we've got. We've really messed up this lovely green planet and we've got to stop doing it. And my beekeeping has opened my eyes to the impact. There are things called neonicotinoids, which have been used in agriculture to kill off pests, insects. And those also, surprise, because the insects, the pests are also bees, are also affected by it. So we've got to think longer term in this world, I think, somehow. Do the right thing and not just take an easy bar of chocolate full of sugar and think that we've done a good thing for us and got a bit of energy no we've really we're messing up our own internal glucose management we're you know we're we're abusing the people who make chocolate to grow it we're obesity and in in the population in the uk and i think in other countries all of these things if you think about it it's bonkers we're doing what we're eating large amounts of high concentrations of sugar which is not a natural substance in the quantities that we take we're over taking it we're doing it wrong just think and we're so resistant to doing the right thing and as I get a bit more mature or senior and still have some of my marbles in my head I get increasingly passionate about why can't we just do some good things with what we're on this this limited time we're, we're allowed on this lovely green place and leave it in a better place for our children and enable it to continue as it is it is it is a unique place the world and we've really got to look after it and yeah it's so sad watching it and i hope it's not too late yeah i i agree with a lot of what you say i'm of the opinion personally that it's covid where there was an emergency that was never let a good crisis go to waste and so there was a lot of cap there's a lot of profiteering and uh, exaggeration of things, in my opinion. But I don't know if climate is. I don't. I uh, I think that we have to be. I I think it's really hard to deny that we are producing obscene amounts of garbage, and that garbage is going everywhere. I think it's hard to deny that we're just splashing chemicals all forever chemicals all over the place. I think that's hard to deny. So I think that those things are critically important that we get right. I don't know if we need to worry about reducing people's consumption of meats. I don't think we have to have people locked in their homes and unable to drive to visit relatives and things. And so that's my concern is that I agree we have to do the right thing. I forget where it is in the world. You mentioned Sir David Attenborough. He did a documentary that was on Netflix. And then one of the things I love so much is there was a, a community, and I just don't know the name of it. I think it was in the Pacific Ocean, but they made like a marine, a protected habitat. And it actually created because the fisher, the the fisheries, the all the the it was dying in that part of the world because of they're just like overfishing and all this stuff. So what they did is they created like a sanctuary, and yep. all the surplus of that was available for the fishermen to take. And it actually created an abundance that of before where they just decimated everything. In Japan, they have a way of harvesting lumber where they actually don't kill the tree. They, it's almost like a bonsai where they culture the tree to grow and they cut the leaves so it grows like wide and, and thick at the bottom. And then they prune the new offshoots that are coming up to grow straight up and then they leave them alone. And what they end up having is they have a tree that has all these beautiful straight wood growing from it and they can harvest that and the tree is still there. They don't kill yep. the whole tree. 
they actually yeah. turn one tree into producing 12, 15, 20 pieces of high quality timber. And it's just an, a more intelligent way of doing things. And I just, I agree with you a thousand percent that we really do need to do that. It's, so, so can I just pull us back to, um, yeah, to cattle and eating meat, because that's a really interesting thing. And again, in North America, there are everyone's um, the, the meat eating um, uh, population. Um, everyone's now saying cows are bad. Um, and most of the you know, intensive feedlots and things that people see probably aren't great for anything in, in many respects. I won't go into the, the detail of that. But the thing I just want to give a bit of balance to is not all cows are bad, right? Mm. So uh, the story is I was in Lyon in Paris with a group of Ugandan vets um, that oh, I love you. I've been to Uganda. Cattle vets. And we were in a lovely French restaurant. And on the menu was lots of different beef products and they were delicacies. And the Ugandan guys were chattering away in their own native language as and, and looking quite yeah. looking frustrated. And I said, what's the matter, guys? And they said, Mark, we're not sure why we're being given this. And I said, but guys, these, this is, these are real delicacies. And I said, what's this? And I said, that's tongue. And what's this? And I said, Those are kid that's kidney. And what's this? And I, so I, we went through various things. And they just sat there shaking their heads. And I said, why are you shaking your heads? And they said, we would never eat this in Uganda. We eat the fillet and that's about it. The rest goes to the dogs. And I said, okay, guys, come on, really? And they said, no, really? And I said, I don't really, uh, I don't understand. I thought the cow was a really important part of the bank balance of African farmers. And they said, yes, it is. Um, and I said, how can that be if you're not eating it and you give it to the dogs? That doesn't make any sense. And they said, ah, you're going to have to go through a little journey to understand this. And you won't forget once you've been through this journey. And I went, OK, tell me. And they said, what's the value in a cow? And I said, you're telling me it's not the meat. You're in Uganda where the transport and the temperatures um, uh, and the often the road conditions don't really allow for a lot of milk production. I don't believe it's the milk. And they went, nope, it's not the milk. And I said, I do know in Nigeria, for instance, that leather is a massive product from cattle. Is it the leather? And they went, no. And I said, now I'm struggling. And they said, what else do cows do? And I said, they poo. And he said, exactly. The cow produces compost manure, which we put on the land. Most of us in Uganda, in our uh, faiths, are vegetarian. Our soil in Uganda is inorganic. And yet we have lots of sun lots of water, but we don't have any organic matter within the soil. The cattle are the composters. With them, we are then able to grow the vegetables that we sell on the side of the road and in the markets and eat in our families. And I went, OMG. Yeah. Know, the cow is instrumental because it is a cash cow in those economies. It is providing all that food. Not all cattle are bad. The way yeah. we keep cattle in monocultures, in feedlots. Monocultures, blocks. even of a food crop, are terrible. Even regenerative agriculture has got to be the way we go in the future. Perma, permaculture and regenerative agriculture and vertical farming are the way yep. of the future. I've been, I just mentioned yep. before this, that we are, I'm leaning heavily into creating a homestead and planting for a farm and that. And I've yep. been doing, going yeah, deep. Yeah. And there's, it's permaculture, regenerative agriculture all the way. No-till not a monoculture crop. You can grow vast amounts of something, but it's almost like the three sisters, which was corn, beans, and squash that grow really well together. 
It's being intelligent yeah. with design, having pollinators in there. I agree with you a thousand percent. And this again, comes back to being intelligent what we do. Since you brought it up, I have a question. I've heard that there's expedited rollout of mRNA vaccines for animals now. And being, I just realized on here with you, you might be a person to be in the know about this to just either make a comment that either you are aware of this, you aren't aware of this, and what do you know about it? I'd... So what context are you thinking of then, though? Whatever, it's my show. I'm going to say what I want to say. I did an interview in 2021, August 2021, yeah. with Dr. Robert Malone. He was the first one to publish a paper ever on how mRNA technology would be used to create a vaccine. He published one of the first three, he published the first three-ish, like, Somebody might have published something in between, but he published the very first and then he published two more shortly after and highly publicized author, Harvard Medical School grad in global clinical yeah. trial research. So he's an advocate for that with this pandemic we've had that mRNA is such a novel technology. Nanolipid particles do pass the blood brain barrier. There's no way we would know if there was a misfolded protein without enough time for proper safety trials, all this kind of stuff. I published an interview with them just as a side note, September, first week, September, 2021, the pot, my downloads on my podcast dropped by 80% mysteriously when usually when we do emails and paid ads and stuff, they go up. But anyhow, I've just heard that whatever people think about that, that a lot of other vaccines have been transitioned to mRNA and people, some people have been hesitant from this. And so what I've heard is that they're putting it into animals now that they've actually like Australia. The livestock in Australia, their vaccines are now being, they're like rolling over from what we normally know as like a dead virus in some sort of solution to now mRNA. And I just realized this was not my intent. I never had, but just realizing what you do, I wonder, you might know something about that. Is that misinformation? Is that something you've heard? No, I, no there is, it, is, it is definitely a the next generation of things we need to look at in the same way that monoclonal antibodies were mm -hmm. the new pharmaceuticals. If we aren't careful, we will have lost the ability to use antibiotics against bacteria. We really overuse them in ways that are not helpful to the long use of them. So right. any vaccine technologies that are there, will that the, the, the researchers, both academic and commercial guys look at, will be there will be real value in them if it means that they are going to be able to uh, generate an immune response more effectively and have maybe less side effects or to be more easily adapted to suit different diseases that we're experiencing. Our friend COVID has largely passed on, if you like, right. but we're now seeing avian flu. H1N5 is it, the, the variant. There are some very virulent types of right. uh, avian flu now, which not just affecting birds, but they've been it's been seen in other species too. And this viral um, family has got the ability to be able to adjust and adapt itself. And we need to be ahead of the game. We need to be looking further forwards. And all of these technologies, I don't know enough about mRNA vaccines, right be able to make any form of scientific comment. It's not my scene. I'm not a virologist or a vaccine guy, but I am supportive of innovation. And the potential for them is, as you, you may have found out on the podcast, high potency, rapid, easy development, low cost manufacture, and, and potentially safer administration. But we don't, all of these things we need to explore responsibly. Yeah. 
and see where it's going. And if we do it properly, if we know and understand, and also, and we go back to what we said a little earlier, it's all very well having a scientific paper published in one right. magazine, one one journal, but actually, what about the papers that were not published that didn't find a response, a result? Yeah, I love that you just uh, brought so that up. Don't get published. There's a real publishing bias in that we have to get over. And now with the way journals are produced, we could uh, find those papers, those researches with a null response. They should be as well published. In fact, my research that I did into anesthetic deaths in horses, I did a clinical trial comparing two anesthetic inhalational agents, i.e. ones you breathe in, halothane versus isoflurane. And this was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and we found a null response. There was no difference. And yet everyone was trumpeting and saying, oh, isoflurane is going to be so much better. Halothane is an unpleasant and had plenty of issues related to it with anesthesia of horses. Isoflurane should have been better. Actually, if you look at the numbers and we and you have to do it in a study with adequate power, the mm-hmm. sample size mm-hmm. has to be big enough to show an effect. And it showed a null response. And so we were able to go back and say, actually, the leading cause of death, cardiac arrests under anesthesia, there was no benefit in using isoflurane versus halothane. There was a hint that might have been better for some elements, some of the complications, but not the primary one that we were concerned about. I did get that paper published. It was uh, my postdoc study and it was published, but plenty of those sorts of studies don't get published yeah, because it yeah. showed a, a non-result. Yep. And that's not okay. If we just live in publication bias of outcomes that show a positive thing, but those studies may not have had adequate power. We need yep. to be firm on that and say, you yeah. should you need to do a bigger study because there isn't power, sufficient power to make the conclusions you have. And we've got to start seeing the whole picture yes. of a research topic, not just the convenient positive I, results that I love we that can you tweak that and up. change. I love you brought that up. That's when I said it the very first time I said you love you said that because we need the biggest data set that we can draw from. Obviously, not you have to worry about the validity of your data integrity. If your right, if your data is not doesn't have good integrity, then everything's for naught. But at the same point, you don't want to disregard things that 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 are valid to be considered. Yeah. So I think that's so powerful. I just want to put a thing out there that, that a lot of these viruses coming out. I believe there a lot of them are single strand RNA viruses. I don't know enough to say for sure, and I'm really just saying this to put this on the recording for anyone that may be savvy to look into it, but I have heard that any single-strand RNA virus, if it is attacked with a combination of, what's the active ingredient in green tea, ECG, ECGC? So the active ingredient in green tea, zinc isomorphs like hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, phosphate, and ivermectin, porcelain, and zinc, that that's combination, apparently any single strand from Zika virus to I think even Ebola, that's something that put out there. I'm not saying it's worth, or I'm just saying it's something that I interview a lot of experts on this show. So I'm not, doesn't necessarily make me an expert, but I just want to put that out there since we're talking about all of this. Mark? Yeah, the, there's quite a lot of paper papers published. Nature have, has got a lot on mRNA vaccines. You'd expect nature to do that. 
and they're really huge credibility in in what they produce and and that would be a good starting point for people who are interested in uh, that new technology there are lots of new areas where we're innovating in really good ways and it's wonderful to see and we need to do more to, to help us but we've also got to solve the fundamentals where we've messed up and, and a lot of whether it's our diet whether it's what we've done to the environment from oil and gas and co2 and global warming and all that or whether it's pouring plastics yep. it's a fantastic uh, thing we've really capitalized on what they can do but we've not disposed of them in ways that right. are sustainable yep. all of these things too much of one thing is a problem yep. um, a balance diversity all of these sort of things respect for the context where one is just do the right thing and yep. and then we'll be able to thrive but if yeah. we allow things to get out of kilter that pendulum of instead of being a nice steady pendulum will suddenly swing as we saw in with the pandemic who knows how that started i've got my own thoughts but i won't yeah. share them now but the pendulum swung way off and yep. we didn't respond to it in 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 ways that were more useful and and actually one of the things i do feel about the covid pandemic was that there weren't enough veterinarians involved in the 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 the, the approach the strategic approach to handling Vet, veterinarians are, are trained in the management of viruses in and bacteria in, in outbreaks and i didn't see many of my profession being right. consulted or involved and that i think could have helped um, yeah. not saying solve the problem sooner but no. it, it's really interesting you bring that up. So let's, I, I'm, I want to be respectful of your time, but I also think this is a really important thing to go on. You'd think that oh, a yeah. medical school, that a pandemic would almost be like the Super Bowl for them. You are training, you're a medical school. This is your opportunity to come out with the treatment plan that saves the world. It is literally your opportunity to become yeah. a, a legend. And we heard nothing but crickets. There's over 300 medical schools, I think, in the United States alone. And we heard nothing but crickets and a single solitary voice of a single solitary methodology led by American institutions. And if you go to our world and data and you look up life expectancy versus cost exp uh, expenditure, you'll find that America has twice the medical care costs and not even middle of the pack performance as a healthcare system. Pfizer in 2009 paid the largest criminal fine in history over $3 billion for criminal and civil charges, false advertising, paying kickbacks. And we let these people lead us through. And I just, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I think I agree with you that veterinarians are trained in how to do this. We could have had so many different things tested and brought forward and none of it happened. And in fact, it was suppressed, right? You're not a horse. Horses and humans use it. There's just Censorship is a really dangerous thing. I'm just glad you brought this up. Like now that we have well, the internet. The reason being that the coronavirus group is, is something that affects many animal populations. And so mm. we are trained in respiratory right. diseases in animals, in poultry and, and pigs, swine, and all sorts of different populations of livestock animals. And in and in companion animals too, there's been a recent outbreak of, of coronavirus in in Cyprus that you may have mm. seen and heard of. Everyone's in a panic about, but actually these things are around, and we need to just deal with them in a measured way. There is knowledge about a lot of them, and I think it was a shame that veterinarians who are trained a lot in how to handle 
pandemics. I mean, what the classic example to me when I first heard about this pandemic thing was we send airplanes over to to China. Yeah, bring to bring the infected British. back home. What? People are dropping dead in the street. Quick, go pick some up and bring them back to highly densely populated uh, areas. Yeah. Sounds like a yeah, good idea. Uh, you've hit the nail on the head. Honestly, <laughs> that's so basic. Just stop, yeah. finish, yeah. stop moving. Everyone stay still. Yeah. And then we then work out what the hell this is. And then we can start making sensible decisions. But no, yeah. let's distribute this wretched thing all over the place. Yeah. And then work out. Yeah. No, there's a lot of profit to be made and those people definitely profited. Was this handled based on best practices for the industry? That is perhaps not for me to judge, but uh, the results speak for themselves. And, but thank goodness humanity now has a nervous system. So that's where people can connect. We can have conversations. We need discourse yeah. around these things. We need people like you that turn data into info. And like you mentioned, we need the largest data sets that we have because censorship is very dangerous. That's where if you're not allowed to draw a conclusion, if I'm not allowed to, if we're trying to estimate the safety of crossing the street without looking both ways, like any valid relevant data that's not included in that equation could equal death. So even if that's where we want the largest data set possible, I don't know if it's a good example or not, but censorship is really bad, especially in the era of AI you brought up, because we don't seek out and kill all the monkeys that exist on the planet because that's not our intent. Now we may destroy their habitat. Some people may poach them. Okay. We don't seek them all out. However, when we use something like AI to censor and suppress and dissent, it seeks out all and everything. And that's where we really have to get back to basic principles, fundamentals. I think that's so important and seek universal truths and to constantly be looking for that signal to noise ratio as we hobble our way into the future, trying to figure out things as we go. So Mark, you've been such well, a wonderful... Oh, yeah, do you want to say well, something? Can I, the, one last thing, I think, and this comes up in... It's a clinical conversation as well um, that needs to be addressed is and um, there's so much disrespect of people, right? So in in flight decks and, and in operating theatres and in uh, lots of high-pressure environments, there are people in the room who may have a, a small voice, but they have an important voice. And so many occasions now, some of the airline catastrophes that have happened, a person in the cockpit was saying, something's wrong, this isn't right. And the other folk would just say, no, no, no I've been a pilot, a, a captain for 15 years, where all is safe, we're going to carry on. And in operating theatres, people say, I don't like the way this parameter is changing. And someone potentially disrespects and says, what do you know? The, and they happen to be female. So there's this stuff going on now in, I know, in operating theatres, people introduce themselves so that they do have a voice before the operation starts. So we, hi, I'm Daryl, I'm the anaesthetist here, responsible for blah. I'm Mark, I'm the surgeon. So-and-so's the, the uh, anaesthesiology uh, technician. I'm going to be responsible for administering the anaesthesia and monitoring this bit. So everyone knows who everyone is. And when that person pipes up and says, ah, I'm not happy, then that voice is heard and you can't just be discarded. And I think the the respect word is so important. I'm so bored. I've got three daughters and I'm so bored of the disrespect that the many people in this world are still expressing to mm. female members mm. of the human species. I see it in my business. It makes me really cross too until I step in. And that may be because I'm the MD or the chief exec, whatever you call it, but or a grumpy git with a male voice. But I've got really good, capable members of my team and 
I'm certain a lot of this is a gender thing. And I think it's disgraceful. And we've got to get better at respecting our other halves. We're all different. And other half of the uh, our genders or people who are wanting to change their gender, we just have to respect them. It's not something that we have to agree with, but sure. we have to just respect. And the same thing with colour, the same thing with faith, same thing with all yep. of these things. Just live on a nice planet, yeah. look after it, stopping <laughs> yeah. so aggressive to each other and unpleasant it's going to get you nowhere nothing good comes out of global domination because it doesn't work just yeah. live respectfully yeah. with everything and everybody and we all have a nice life but if yeah. you start abusing things behaving badly it's immorally there are if you look at the values in most of the faiths in the world they're pretty similar they just yeah. happen to be expressed in a different language yep. or we pay homage to a different deity. But actually, if you look at it, and I remember sitting in a, a cathedral for, we have a slightly unusual system in the UK, people call high sheriffs. And one of my good friends was becoming high sheriff, George Vesty. And he had in his legal service when he was, which they all do when they become appointed as part of their year as high sheriff, he had... I think it was six, seven faiths. So there were Muslims, there were Hindus, there were Sikhs, there were Jews, there were Catholics. All of these read their version of what I would call the Lord's Prayer in English. And you sat there and you think, hang on, we've all said the same thing. They yeah. all said exactly the same thing. Yeah. And so what's everyone's trouble? We may have different skin colour. We may talk a different language. We may have certain resources others want let's just be good to each other and work out something that actually makes sense that's what i find frustrating about politics is always it's his fault it's her fault it's not me they did this blah, blah, blah. no come on let's pull together and go what is what are the problems that we need to sort out who's yeah. got some good ideas here i might be politician uh, a political party a somebody else may be political party b doesn't mean to say they've got a bad idea yep. it means Actually, let's listen to that and work out hmm, something in that. Yeah. Let's all work together. Let's not have winners and losers. Let's the winners and losers are going to be pretty obvious if we don't sort a lot of these problems out. We're not we're going to be the losers. So let's just come together and work out problems together. Mark, sorry. Thank you so much. This is no, it's good. I had my own, so it's fine. Thank you so much for sharing this. If people want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they have questions, what are the best ways for them to contact you? Yeah, find- my my email is mark with a K dot Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N at vetstream, V-E-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com. That's a good way. The Vetstream website, the VetLexicon website, any of those things work nicely for me. And I'd be very happy to engage with anyone who wants to have a further chat. I think life is about people. We're human beings and uh, and I love the connections with people. And I, I encourage everyone to explore their, their what they are in, in their personalities. Find out what sort of person you really are, because we, we are all different. And then work to your strengths. Find out what those strengths might be. Do tests, do personality profiles explore and discuss with friends and colleagues but just be respectful to everything that we have around us whether that's people friends colleagues environment our bodies just it's not difficult just be respectful and do the right thing and one's uh, one's life could be beneficial to everyone one could make a healthy living 
and do something good, leave the world a better place. I love it. So for people that want to find him, check out Mark, M-A-R-K, Johnston, J-O-H-N-S-T-O-N. Mark dot Johnston. Mark, Mark dot, dot Johnston at vetstream.com. V-E-T-S-T-R-E-A-M.com. Or check out Mark Johnston on LinkedIn. You can find him there. Mark, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. I know you've got your own company, your own followers, your own community to take care of. Thank you for coming and helping share with me and mine. No, I, I really hope that I'm giving some insight for others who are on uh, different journeys, but also want to flourish and and enjoy being on this lovely planet with each other and have a good life. And as I say, leave the world a better place. So I, I really appreciate your invitation to be on here. I've really enjoyed this conversation and would be happy to ha- to meet up again.